Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When thunder roars, go indoors. You've all probably heard the saying, and I'm sure many of you have your own close calls with lightning. This week is Lightning Safety Awareness Week, and today we're talking to the person who created this annual event. John Jensenius has spent his career keeping people safe as a meteorologist in the National Weather Service, and one of his legacies has been to educate and protect people from the dangers of lightning. Each year, lightning kills about 49 people, so we'll talk about the ways you can stay safe and even debunk some of those myths you may be hearing about lightning that are putting you at risk. Now let's begin what is sure to be an electric discussion. John, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. You know, one of the things, I don't know how familiar you are with this podcast, but one of the things I ask every single guest, and I can't let you off the hook either, is how'd you become a weather geek? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I have to say, when I was very young, uh, I loved two things. First of all, I loved going out and measuring snow, and I will say I never got enough. And secondly, I loved watching thunderstorms. Uh, and thunderstorms, I think, so I had something to do in the winter and something to do in the summer. But I will say I didn't really understand the dangers of thunderstorms because I realize now that I really wasn't being very safe when I was young. Nor were any of us for that matter. We just probably didn't know better. I can certainly remember my own sort of stories about being out in storms, probably a bit too long as the thunder was roaring and I wasn't going enduring, as they should say. Uh, but uh, let me give you a little background on, on John before we really dive into this conversation. He's a meteorologist and lightning safety specialist with the National Lightning Safety Council. Um, he was a National Weather Service meteorologist for 41 years before retiring in 2019. He received the Department of Commerce's silver medal for contributions to NOAA's Lightning Safety Initiative. That's actually, by the way, the department's second highest honor. He got that in 2006. Uh, he received the National Weather Association's Public Education Award. He initiated the first Lightning Safety Awareness Week, so literally a founder here on a a pioneer, has a bachelor's degree in earth sciences meteorology from Millersville and a master's in meteorology from Penn State. So it's not often, you know, that you get to talk to someone that created something and not only created something, created something for the good of the, the general body. And so I think that's what John has done. So first of all, thank you for your service to our community and to our society and what you've done. Uh, how, how, let's kind of just take, take some steps back. How did you get involved with the Weather Service and uh, what are some of the offices you've worked in? Well, uh, the, after uh, my graduate degree from Penn State, I actually taught for a year at the State University of New York at Oneonta. And while I was there, the opportunity arose to uh, work with the National Weather Services, uh, what then was called the uh, Techniques Development Lab, developing statistical forecasts. And I did that for about 17 and a half years. I, I have to say, I really enjoyed doing that and working on that. But at the same time, I was looking for uh, an opportunity uh, to have my children grow up in a different area of the country. 
And uh, I was very fortunate in having uh, the warning coordination meteorologist job open in uh, uh, Gray, Maine, which is near Portland. And I seized that opportunity and uh, worked there for from 95 through 2019. So um, very, uh, very glad to do that. But uh, I've had an interesting career. I look at it as almost two different careers because one was in statistical development and one was working with the public. And uh, certainly both of those were very rewarding. I want to want to take this opportunity because I know we have some weather geeks listeners at work in the National Weather Service. And I just want to, on behalf of myself uh, and also the, the Weather Channel and everyone, we would thank everyone who has any engagement with the National Weather Service. I, as I've written many times in my Forbes column, the National Weather Service is one of the greatest values this country has to offer, given what what uh, people like John and his colleagues do for for the nation uh, on a billion dollar budget or so. I, I think it should be more. Uh, but for what they do, given the the, the radars and, and and models and satellites and forecast offices and just hours when they have to go to work and toil during sequestrations and all kind of political ebbs and flows. Uh, I, I can't ever I thank the National Weather Service enough. So I just wanted to take that pause and do that. Uh, yeah, I would like to, uh, now that I'm retired, I can kind of do the same speak thing. Freely. Because, uh, <laughs> That's I the beauty say, of not being in the government. I know that for a fact, I, as a, a former civil servant with NASA, it's a little bit freer speaking. So go ahead and say what you're going to say, John. Yeah, uh, the... Uh, Certainly, I don't think people appreciate the hours, the fact that uh, the forecasters work rotating shifts and just the, uh, you know, even not just the forecasters, but also their families, uh, the fact that they have a very disruptive life uh, working with the National Weather Service and doing those uh, critical, uh, the critical job of putting out warnings and keeping people safe. So really, uh, you know, uh, now that I've retired, hats off to all the people that are working in the Weather Service. No, absolutely. Now, I want to kind of come back to the Weather Service. How did you kind of carve out your niche as a lightning expert? Well, that is is kind of interesting because when I got up to uh, Maine in uh, 1995, uh, w- one of the things I wanted to do is to look at uh, the needs of the area. And one of the things that I discovered was the fact that uh, although light, or Maine has much less lightning than just about everywhere else in the country, they the per capita death toll was actually very high. I think at one point we were eighth highest in the country. And I thought, gee, there's something I should do about that. So uh, in 1999, I uh, started a Lightning Safety Awareness Week for Maine and New Hampshire, which is the two states that I covered and actually brought in Ron Holly, uh, who uh, at that time was uh, working at the Severe Storms uh, Center. And uh, uh, he and I did uh, across the state kind of uh, a program doing various uh, talks and radio shows and television shows. And from that point, uh, I I said to him, I said, you know what? This isn't a problem just in Maine. It's everywhere. People just don't understand the dangers of lightning. And really, we need to uh, make this a nationwide effort. So uh, I worked on that. And fortunately, in 2001, uh, I was able to uh, put forth a proposal and get the National Weather Service to initiate the uh, first National Lightning Safety Awareness Week. And as this 
podcast episode is airing, we are in the midst of that week. So for 2021, so just spend a little time, just take a few minutes or, or, or so to just learn all that you can about lightning and, and safety. And unfortunately, here in this area, down this way, there was recently in the news about a 15-year-old that was killed by lightning, I, I believe, uh, on uh, at the beach or along the coast somewhere. I don't know the exact particulars. So uh, it's certainly a hazard. Which leads me to many of the myths. There's so many myths out there that I hear. Just some are very dangerous that really can put people in harm's way. John, what are some of the myths that you you spend most of your time debunking? Well, I, I don't know if it's a myth or just simply a misunderstanding that people think storms are much farther away than they actually are. They look out and they may see clouds in a distance and hear some rumbles and say, you know what, I have time, I can finish what I'm doing, or maybe the storm will pass by and they, they make various excuses for why they shouldn't go inside. But the true fact is that if you're hearing thunder, even a distant rumble, you're already in danger and you need to get inside right away. And that's probably uh, the misunderstanding that, uh, uh, that results in most of the deaths and injuries. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right, John. I mean, one of the things that I often caution people about, too, sort of building on what you were just talking about, is this notion of even clear sky or out of the blue lightning that often happens maybe in the anvil or uh, in the parts of the storm that aren't where the core heaviest rainfall are. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and, and oftentimes people uh, figure that if it's not raining, they might be safe. And that really isn't true at all. There are many lightning strikes that happen outside the area that, uh, that there isn't rain. So uh, just the fact that it isn't raining doesn't make it safe. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, because I, over the past, I've started, I started documenting every lightning fatality in the U.S. in 2006. So I've documented about 435 fatalities. And uh, a large number of those people just said, well, they didn't expect it. It was something out of the blue or, you know, they knew a storm was uh, kind of in the distance, but they uh, they just didn't react soon enough to that uh, threat. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that baffles me the most, I think it's just a human psychology problem. I see it at ball games. I see it at parks and youth practices. People will, you know, there'll be a lightning delay uh, at the stadium or at the park. And people just kind of mingle, mill around in the stadium or at the park. They'll only take shelter if it starts raining. Uh, that is the most bizarre thing to me. I mean, you a lightning strike can literally kill you, but you'll sort of linger in place, but literally will only take shelter just because you don't want to get wet. I just don't understand that. I mean, I, I, is that something that is consistent with things you've observed? Well, it certainly is consistent with what I've observed. And uh it, I, I mean, I see that kind of in the uh, the injuries and deaths as well in the stories. So people, uh, you know, it's it, people just simply wait too long. They're really when we when we look at the fatalities, uh, I, I kind of divide them into uh, two main areas. There are obviously some others as well, but one is uh, what we just talked about is that people wait too long, and the second one is that people just don't plan ahead so that they can get to a safe place in a reasonable amount of time. And a reasonable amount of time means that you have to get there before the threat really arrives. 
And that's, uh, that's a, uh, a very common mistake. I think back to, you know, when it comes to this, I think back to my childhood in the 1950s and the 1960s, and what I was told about lightning safety is simply don't stand under a tree. And we've come a long way since there in understanding lightning and understanding why people are being killed. And really it comes down to uh, you wanna plan ahead and you need to get to a safe place as soon as the threat arrives. And, and I, I think I do still see people that do stand, take shelter under trees, unfortunately, even though we know that we're not supposed to do that. I was picking up my son from school a couple of weeks ago and I actually ended up writing a Forbes article about this because I just noticed kids, there were, I pulled up my radar scope and there was lightning all around us in the area, but yet st- kids were standing on the trees waiting for their moms or dads. They were walking from the bus, about the headed probably home. And so it just made me think about this sort of, sort of gap in sort of lightning safety for kids that are either starting school or at the end of school. I mean, I know there's safety measures while they're at school, but in these sort of transition periods, it, it was just very apparent to me as someone just picking up my own son, uh, you know, the danger that some of those kids were in. So, yeah, um, in your article, I think you uh, even mentioned the uh, the case in Florida. Yes. Um, which uh, was a uh, it was a school that actually had very unfortunately had a fatality uh, mm-hmm. and they had uh, actually started uh, delayed arrivals and delayed departures. Because of thunderstorms, which is really, I mean, when you think of it, you do it for snowstorms, you might do it for other things. Why not do it for lightning? Because that that really is the threat that uh, most children face. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. And it's interesting that you said that about Maine, because I, here in Georgia and I went to school at Florida State, uh, for the lightning, one of the lightning capitals of the country is in central Florida, which is not where Florida State is. But uh, I, I don't necessarily think of lightning in, in Maine, to be honest with you, as a lightning hub. But certainly, certainly every place has lightning. But from a per capita standpoint, I, it, it sounded like you were having some serious issues there. Yeah, and that well, that school was in in, uh, in Florida, in Central Florida, where they did have a yes. lot of lightning. Uh, they, I, I will say that they did have uh, some very, they set up some very good guidelines. Uh, the the one thing that was kind of missing um, was uh, the notification of the parents and really educating the parents on why they were doing what they were doing. And a number of parents got very upset, but. Uh, in reality, uh, you know, that was uh, those were some very good procedures they set up for uh, children going back and forth uh, to school. And you mentioned the under trees. Actually, the uh, the first fatality of the year was a golfer that um, he was found uh, under a tree. So the and the tree was struck. So they presumed he was sheltering under the tree. It happens. It happens quite often. I, I always can't tell if it if it just. Uh, was he happened to be, or a person happened to be by the tree and the tree was struck or they sheltered under the tree. But in any case, trees are generally the tallest object in the immediate area. They tend to get struck. Uh, Lightning, when it strikes an object, spreads out along the ground surface. And uh, that ground current is often what kills or injures people. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with John Dinsinius about lightning safety. And I want to circle back in this conversation to something that I always learned as a child and actually still adhere to it. And I, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing or is this a myth? Uh, in, in, in the home, I was always told if, if there's a thunderstorm and it's lightning outside to not take a shower or go, go into the bathroom or, you know, of course, use corded phones. I mean, we, most of us have cell phones or cordless phones these days. But are, are some of these things sort of true or myth in terms of some of the things we should be doing when we're inside the home? Well, the, the, what you heard was true. You should not be taking a shower. Uh, you should not be uh, um, connected in any way to anything plugged into the wall, and you should not be connected to uh, corded phones. And the reason for that is that if lightning uh, strikes a house, uh, typically it's likely to follow either the wiring or the plumbing to the ground. Uh, if you've got that amount of electricity following the wiring or the plumbing, it should be obvious that you don't want to be connected in any way to either of those. So we don't want people taking a shower. We don't want people washing dishes. A uh, number of people have been injured uh, doing uh, laundry. Um, your, your washing machine is connected to both wiring and Wait, plumbing. So can I pose? That's a new one on me, doing laundry. Yeah, well, there it's connected to both wiring and plumbing. Yeah. And uh, that's somewhere where people are, are struck. So... Wow. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, uh, I, I read a story from earlier this year about a teacher who was home, uh, was working on their laptop, plugged into the wall, becomes dangerous, and they were injured when lightning struck their home. So uh, people don't realize it. It does happen. Uh, for those of us that follow um, the lightning deaths and injuries, uh, we see an awful lot more than most people see. And I, I will say, these things do happen. They are uh, something that you have to uh, uh, take precautions so you don't get injured or killed. What are some, do you have any statistics that you, from your own data that you can throw out there in terms of number of deaths or places that receive the most death and things like that? Well, uh, in terms of overall deaths, uh, Florida leads the nation in deaths. And there are a couple of reasons. When I, when I look at deaths, there are a couple of things that I look for. Uh, one is, of course, the factors uh, that would uh, lead to lightning deaths, obviously the amount of lightning, and Florida is very high in the amount of lightning. But secondly, outdoor activities, because uh, most people are involved. In fact, the studies I've shown have so, shown that about two-thirds of the people that are killed are involved in some sort of uh, uh, leisure activity. Uh, so it's that combination and when we look at Florida, it has beaches, it has golf courses, uh, it has a lot of people, and it has a lot of lightning. So for good reason, um, it's no surprise that Florida leads the country in terms of lightning fatalities and injuries. Yeah. However, the other thing that, uh, that I noted very early on is that some of the countries, when you start looking at per capita, uh, places like um, Wyoming, uh, and when I first started Maine uh, and New England, uh, also when you looked at per capita, were quite high too. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was, although they don't have a lot of lightning, they do have a lot of outdoor activities. 
And on those warm, humid days when you're likely to get lightning, people are outside enjoying those activities. They're at the beaches trying to stay cool. So it's that, uh, it's that uh, common uh, uh, occurrence of both lightning and outdoor activities, which is most dangerous. Now you mentioned other statistics. This is one that you and I are not going to like is that 80% of the fatalities are male. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because we have this sort of, I guess many of us do, I don't want to generalize in any way, but I mean, I guess we play ball, perhaps at a higher percentage, we play golf more and boat and fish and those types of things. Is that why that's the case or are we well, just that That is one of the factors. Uh, there, there are a couple of factors for it. Uh, I would say uh, in terms of overall activities, fishing is the number one activity since 2006. 40 people have been killed that uh, were involved in fishing. Uh, and we, some of the others, camping, boating. Uh, and I think there are more men involved in that. Uh, work activities, uh, men are uh, much more, uh, we see many more men that are killed and involved in outdoor work activities. So there are some factors there as well. But then I also, if you take something like uh, beach activities, 75% of the beach activities are male. And I don't think if you went to a normal beach, you would see that the beach is 75% male and only 25% female. So there has to be something else. And I believe, at least in my opinion, that uh, men are uh, less willing to be inconvenienced by the sound of thunder. And I suspect uh, not just at the beach, but everywhere else. And that contributes to it as well. Yeah. So there is some, you know, there's some demographic reasons, just some of the activities that we're doing outside. But there are sounds like there are some socio demographic or psychology or even bravado issues that perhaps have been studied. I don't know. Or if they haven't been, they should be, because I, I was aware of those kind of that disproportionate balance gender wise and in, in, in some of the lightning deaths, uh, John, talking with John Jensenius about lightning safety. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is on, on the council's website, there's something called the deadly dozen. What's that? Well, those are the activities that have contributed most to the uh, fatalities over the years. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, topping that list is uh, fishing, which has contributed 40 fatalities since 2006. Uh, second highest on the list is uh, the uh, beach fatalities, which contributed 24, camping 22. And then we get to uh, one of the work-related, which is farming and ranching, which has contributed to 41 of the uh, fatalities, uh, riding motorcycles, bikes, ATVs, boating, Social gatherings, uh, people just uh, going out either uh, for a picnic with their family or just uh, meeting people in their backyard, neighbors in their backyard. Many people are literally steps away from safety when they're struck. And it's really a matter of going inside. Uh, other um, uh, areas, roofing is, uh, is a cause, a large cause of the work-related fatalities. Uh, 16 people have been killed roofing. And I will say most of those occur in southern areas. And uh, uh, we've noticed over the years that many of those uh, have Hispanic surnames. So one of the things we're trying to do is to uh, get more information out to the Hispanic community on that. And the same is true about uh, um, yard work, uh, uh, where, uh, where people are working with uh, 
companies to uh, take care of uh, various either yards or just outdoors uh, businesses. And then when we get... CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. John, you were talking about something and I, I, I think we had to go to break there. What were you about to say? Okay, and then, well, I was going to say when we get to the sports activities, you mentioned golf earlier, and uh, certainly it's very dangerous playing golf. And I think that uh, has been recognized over the years, and many courses have uh, equipment that alerts people to the to an approaching thunderstorm, which is good. Uh, golf is not the uh, sport which causes the most lightning deaths. It's actually soccer. Oh, and is that right? Not necessarily uh, organized soccer, but just a pickup game. Kids go out and play soccer. Uh, sometimes it is organized, and uh, but we're seeing a lot of soccer deaths. I think golf is second, and then just running, going out for a run. Uh, some of that may come down, especially the running, is uh, just being too far away from a safe place. It all comes back to the planning to. Uh, monitor conditions, whether it be via the weather channel or uh, no weather radio or just getting on the computer and checking out the radar. Yeah. And, there, uh, and a lot of the apps these days have some lightning detection features too. I know the one that I use radar scope certainly does if you pay for that feature. Um, what is sort of the, so I, there, there are all of these stories, there are fatalities certainly and tragic stories, but there are also these stories of people surviving lightning strikes. Is there one particular story or, or, or odd situation that comes to mind that you, in all of your years of looking at lightning? Well, the, uh, you know, I'm always very happy when people survive. The, uh, I, I will say um, it's, it's a very common question. People ask me, how can you possibly survive a direct lightning strike? And I would be asking the same question too. In fact, I probably have asked the same question to uh, uh, Dr. Marianne Cooper, who's our medical expert. But if you think of taking a bucket full of water and within a half a second, pouring it through a straw, you'll get a little bit of that water going through the straw, but in reality, most of it's going to go around. And that's sort of what happens with lightning. There's just so much electricity it much most of it goes around the body some of it goes through and the amount that goes through is enough to kill a person but uh it may or may not and, and most times it will uh, stop the heart uh, so that they can be revived with cpr so those are the things that people have to uh that people have to realize i have followed uh, a number of uh people uh that have been struck and and Unfortunately, some of their stories have become very prolonged because they, they, they're they alive, but they haven't really recovered. And that's one of the uh, sad things about lightning is that uh, um, it, the injuries that people have may be lifelong injuries and they may be devastating. So, um, so I don't think people normally see that part of it because uh, what they read in either online or in a newspaper is 
the person survived it, but you don't really know uh, how it affected the person. And oftentimes the effects are just devastating for the remainder of their lives. Now, John, you mentioned one of your colleagues. I'm imagining she's a part of the council. Tell us a little bit about the Lightning Safety Council. Well, the uh, Lightning Safety Council was organized probably uh, about four or five years ago, uh, really to continue the efforts that uh, many of the people did when we were involved with the uh, NOAA Lightning Safety Team. And a, a couple of things that, uh, you know, our, our uh, goal is really to complement what the National Weather Service has online with information that may be uh, important to uh, many of the uh, many of the other people, many of the media, uh, so that we can provide statistics, information, so that they can write stories on lightning fatalities. But really, uh, the National Weather Service sort of got aware uh, away from having a lightning safety awareness week and kind of went to a spring threat, a summer threat. And we decided we really wanted to keep the Lightning Safety Awareness Week going because it was so important. So we formed the National Lightning Safety Council. Uh, and uh, in doing so, we were able to keep the uh, uh, National Lightning Safety Awareness Week going, which we think is very important. And I, I really appreciate you doing this show during the week so that, uh, so that your listeners uh, uh, get more information. And I would encourage them to really get out there and uh, look at the information both on the National Weather Service site and the uh, Lightning Safety Council site. So who, who who's on the count? Is it a group of volunteer experts? Are they appointed? Are they paid? Is it, um, do you do research uh, in addition to your sort of public engagement and outreach? Uh, just, just a lot of questions come to mind. Oh, well, in terms of the council, uh, really, and I, I'll put this in perspective, is when we organized or when I initiated the uh, uh, lightning safety team for NOAA, uh, I brought in the experts. I brought in Dr. Mary Ann Cooper. I brought in Ron Holly. I, I brought in others that have been very involved. Uh, and along the line, we brought in uh, uh, Kim Lohr. Uh, we have somebody for sports. And <clears throat> so anyhow, we had a good team within NOAA. And one of the decisions in NOAA was that they thought their teams should uh, uh, be in-house. They didn't think it was appropriate to have outside people uh, on a uh, NOAA team. So at, at that point, we decided we would take those people and just move outside as the National Lightning Safety Council. Since then, we've uh, as we get older, we realize that uh, we need younger people uh, on the team, people that are uh, more active and better with social media. So uh, people that we've worked with, we, that we know or have been involved in lightning safety and are interested, we've brought some of those in as well. So, but it's, it's more or less uh, uh, by invitation that we bring people in and it's because of the work that they've been doing. By the way, I want to spend a, a, a special sort of hello to Chris Fajeski, who I, th I think that may be involved from Vaisala. He was on a recent episode talking about lightning at some of the Major League Baseball stadiums. Very interesting study he had done. Um, you've been engaged, John, in public engagement and outreach for some time now with lightning with success. Uh, are there any lessons learned or challenges that come to mind over the years and just communicating scientific topics or weather-related hazards to the public? Any sort of things you've learned or sort of aha moments along the way? Well, the, uh, I, I think the 
thing that everybody probably learns at some point or another is keep it simple. And one of the things that uh, really benefited our effort was uh, uh, Bill Roeder, or, um, who uh, works for uh, down at uh, Cape Canaveral. He uh, came up with a saying, when thunder roars, go indoors. Uh, and that's a, that's a very simple statement. Little children can learn it. And in fact, children have learned it. And uh, I, I think in terms of communication, that's the best thing we've come up with. Uh, the other part of communication is um, that I look at it as we learn by example. And by that, I don't mean that you have to see somebody get struck by lightning. By example means you see people doing the right thing. Um, and I think of coaches of sports activities that are outdoors. If they're doing the right thing and teaching the youngsters that when they hear thunder, they have to stop and get to a safe place, those children are gonna learn that. And if it goes on for their entire childhood, it'll be ingrained in them that once you hear thunder, it's dangerous. And I think that's gone a long way. We, um, one of the first couple of years, we involved the uh, Little League Baseball. That has a tremendous outreach. We couldn't do this without partners. And uh, we look for those partners. In the case of Little League Baseball, uh, they reach out to about 2.5 million children worldwide. I mean, that's a wonderful uh, distribution for our safety message when thunder roars go indoors. So we do rely on partners and those are very important to us. Yeah, and thank you, thanking all of those partners because this is this literally is a life or death matter. And so it's important that people are educated. One last question, John, and you mentioned this earlier that Florida was kind of the lightning capital and that's what I've always heard as well. But I saw a recent study where Oklahoma may have crept into the top there. I mean, are you familiar with that? What's going, is that true? Or? Yeah, well, uh, that, that actually is something you mentioned, Chris Vagaski. Yeah, Chris is on our uh, council. He's a, he's a great member. He, uh, very active in social media and uh, works with Vaisala uh, with a lot of the lightning statistics. In terms of the, the, the uh, total lightning, he found that Oklahoma topped Florida. Uh, but uh, if I were in Florida, I would still claim that title because Florida still has uh, the most lightning uh, or cloud to ground lightning strikes uh, per area. So I would, I would continue to uh, claim that. Now, the, the real question is, who has the most cloud-to-ground lightning strikes? Well, it's Texas, because Texas is such a large state. So, yeah, the physical size of the state. So, but anyhow, uh, no, it's, uh, it's one of those things where if you're talking about total lightning, which includes the uh, in-cloud lightning, uh, Oklahoma wins. And if you're talking about cloud-to-ground lightning, Florida wins. Right. And I and again, I know you say that winning and, and somewhat jest because it's really a losing proposition in terms of the, the fatalities. And so we really thank you so much for all that you've done to really educate people. I can't let 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 us out of here yet without doing the geek of the week. It is that time of the podcast where we highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of the podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Doug Kiesling. Doug is a weather video broker and storm chaser, so you know he has some amazing sights out there on the plains. With so many memorable events to choose from in his 20 to 30 years of chasing, he can't pick just one. He loves all severe weather. 
He was actually the first person to live storm chase across the U.S. using only cell phone data, and he streamed it in HD. That's quite a feat. Keep up the great work, Doug, and stay safe out there. If you'd like to follow along with Doug, check him out on Twitter at StormChasingVID. That's at StormChasingVID. And if there's someone you'd like to nominate for the Geek of the Week, please check out our social media pages. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. And that's it for this episode. And make sure you check out the council's page and all those safety tips that they uh, make available because they're doing work to save lives. And we really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.